All right, to let you guys know how tonight's going to work, and we'll do over the uh, the order for the debate. Uh, we're going to start off with 14-minute affirmative constructive by Phil. Uh, then we go to a five-minute cross-examination of the negative of affirmative. 15 negative, 15 minutes for negative constructive from Dave. A five-minute cross-exam from the affirmative or the negative. Seven-minute affirmative rebuttal. A seven-minute negative rebuttal. A 15-minute open dialogue uh, where the moderators asking questions and the negative and affirming interacting in conversation. A five-minute negative closing statement. A six-minute affirmative closing statement. Then we're going to have a five-minute break. Um, followed by 15 to 20 minutes of audience question and answer session. Now, all of you have a card. Uh, you should have got a, a note card uh, when you came in or been passed around. On that note card, as you're listening to the debate, make sure if there's a question that you want to ask uh, one of the presenters, please write that down. Write down the name of who you want that to be asked to. And while we're in our break, if you would, just bring that up to the moderator's desk here, and we'll be sure to go through those and, and use those questions when we get to the Q&A time. So to uh, start off, I'm going to introduce to you uh, Phil Calver, taking the affirmative this evening. Uh, Phil has a BA in English from Evangel University and an MA in philosophy from Holy Apostles College and Seminary, where he wrote his thesis on the modal ontological argument for the existence of God. Before pursuing higher education, he spent time in the Army and has worked numerous different jobs since. Phil has presented essays at many philosophical, philosophical conferences is a member of several philosophical societies and runs a weekly podcast called The Examine Life with Phil. He is primarily interested in philosophy of religion and epistemology, but finds most areas of philosophy interesting. Phil greatly enjoys a good story, follows politics more than is warranted, and is usually and used to enjoy his PS4 when he had time. He lives in Bolivar, Missouri with his wife, daughter. Right. On the uh, negative side tonight of this debate, we have Dave Van Bever. He is a pastor at FBC Buffalo in Buffalo, Missouri. Pastor Dave earned his B.A. in communication from Southwest Baptist University, an M.A. in communication from Missouri State University, and an M.A. in counseling from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is currently a doctoral student at Columbia Evangelical Seminary. Mr. Van Bever's master's thesis on the death of my sister, a crystallized account of family grief and bereavement, was the first master's thesis to apply Laura Ellington's postmodern methodology of crystallization. Mr. Van Bever teaches rhetoric and persuasion at Spurgeon College. He is a decorated Army veteran and an incomplete par uh, paraplegic. He has contributed to Routledge's handbook of Autoethnography. Autoethnography. <laughs> he has presented research on Islam, uh, generic criticism, and postmodern research methods. He is a research, or he is a member of Phi Kappa Delta, the nation's oldest speech honorary. Dave will present his research on podcasting and Resolution 9 of the SBC at the ISCA conference this March in Chicago. Dave is the co-host of Tag Your It podcast with Adam Ray Ray Cochran. It is a bi-weekly presuppositional apologetics podcast. He has also authored two books as well as articles for other publications. He is married to Val and they have four children. So please join us in welcoming our debaters. Proposition tonight uh, up for debate is in, is inerrancy best understood as a scale or range of concepts? 
Mr. Calvert, you are now recognized to offer the opening of permanent constructive. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you so much, you all, for coming, and thank you to Dave for setting this up and inviting me to be a part of it. I basically only had to show up. He did all the work. So I'll just get going here. The question under consideration is, inerrancy best considered a range or scale? And I'm arguing yes. Now, right from the start, let me define and clarify a few things here. If first, if it's understood in the broadest possible sense, inerrancy has always just been a part of Christianity. Scripture is the words of God, derives its authority from this fact, and this has always been the Orthodox Christian understanding. But being without error depends on what error is. And this is not always as easy and simple to see as seeing the error in statements like 2 plus 2 equals 3, or the Earth is a trillion miles from the sun. What error is is radically dependent on context. So when engineers are constructing a mile-long suspension bridge, they're going to have a very low tolerance for errors in measurement. Conversely, if we're building a four-foot doghouse out of scrap, different tolerances. An error in the case of the bridge, probably no such thing in the case of the doghouse. Now, our context is radically different from the context of the authors of Scripture. Hence, we're often going to see error where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John simply saw no such thing. And also, it is just a practical reality that different Christians do have different understandings of inerrancy. My 90-year-old grandma and I both believe in inerrancy, but we don't mean the same thing. Dave and I both affirm inerrancy, but we don't mean the same thing, hence this debate. Now, David agrees with me that this is the way things are. People believe differently about this. Where we seem to disagree is whether or not it should be this way. So I'm arguing that thinking of inerrancy as a scalar range is not just the way things practically are, but is also the best way to understand Scripture, as that's how the authors of Scripture saw things. Now, while I don't want to put words in Dave's mouth, since I'm the first to go here, I kind of have to define the terms that I'm arguing against. So here's how I understand the strong or all or nothing inerrancy. And if this winds up misconstruing Dave's view, then I apologize and invite appropriate correction. So John Wesley described this all or nothing approach saying, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, there may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from the God of truth. And more recently, R. Albert Muller argued for the same saying, without a total commitment, to the trustworthiness and truthfulness of the Bible, the church is left without its defining authority, lacking confidence in its ability to hear God's voice. So here are a few points that I argue demonstrate that this is just too limited an understanding of inerrancy. First, language and the biblical languages especially just don't work that way. Language is not math, it is not that precise, and at times it is vague and unclear. Second, contemporary understanding of error is a much broader category than that of the biblical authors. We see error where they did not. Thus, our understanding of error will often not match up with theirs. Third, inerrancy is best understood as applying to the intended meaning of the biblical authors and not in the text themselves. And fourth, this all-or-nothing approach encourages people to invest their own interpretations with the authority of Scripture. So first, the first point is that language in the biblical language especially just don't allow for this all-or-nothing type of thinking. For example, my wife and I come from very similar backgrounds, speak the same language, have higher than average levels of education, have been living together for over five years, attend the same denomination, the same religion, and we still have miscommunications. And that's because communication is, language is not always that precise. Communication often doesn't fit into neat and tidy, black and white, all or nothing, completely true and completely false categories. Here's another easy example. Christ said in Mark 4 that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which will be in the smallest of seeds, grows up and becomes larger than all the other garden plants. Now, the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds, but it's also the case that Christ is using this as kind of an analogy or like a mini parable to teach us about the kingdom of God and not about botany and biology. 
Hence, there is the true thing, Christ's point about the kingdom of God, and the false thing, the mustard seed being the smallest, all mixed together. Now, I don't see this as a problem for the broad sense of an area, as botanist is in Christ's point. But if you adopt the all-or-nothing approach, something like this should really trouble you quite a bit. Add to this that ancient Greek often didn't have quotation, excuse me, never had quotation marks, and often didn't have spaces between the words, and sometimes in ancient Hebrew they didn't even write out the vowels, but instead expected you to guess what they were. Thus, in the original manuscripts of scripture, there is no apparatus for formal documentation. When Jesus quotes Moses, there is usually no reason to expect that his quotation will be precise. In ordinary language, it is perfectly proper to give the gist of someone's words without precision, or even to alter the quotation to bring out something that might otherwise be ignored. And scripture is, of course, ordinary language. So naturally, us English speakers coming to the Bible simply assume that the biblical authors worked with the same level of precision that we're accustomed to. But they did not, and there is much evidence of this. In order to say that a sentence is all or nothing, you need a high level of precision in your language. And given the constraints of these ancient languages and the practical problems with writing in the ancient world, it was very time-consuming and expensive to write then, we cannot and should not expect this from the biblical authors. But the all-or-nothing approach requires that we do. Now, second, and very closely related, we have a much broader understanding of error than the ancient world and the biblical authors did. Consider again the mile-long bridge versus the doghouse. The different context changes what we consider an error, or at least I certainly hope it does. Now, since the first century AD, there have been massive technological, social, and cultural changes, and it would just be foolish to assume that these changes have not affected the way we read texts and the way we think about truth and falsity. Unlike when the biblical authors were writing, it's easy to reproduce text today. When the Gospels were written, writing was very expensive and difficult. Conversely, last month I looked this up, I could have bought 1,500 sheets of paper and 24 pens from Amazon for about 25 bucks, and they'd have even shipped it to me for free. <laughs> Making a mistake while writing today is usually easily and inexpensively rectified. Con comparatively, such mistakes in the first century were very, very costly. It's now easy to reproduce text with perfect accuracy, highlighted and hit control C. Again, comparatively in the first century, all text needed to be reproduced by hand. This required a great deal of time and labor and usually a specialist. We now assume a relatively high level of precision in our language and communication. But this simply wasn't possible in the first century or earlier. We can be picky about what constitutes an error, while first century authors and readers did not have this luxury. So now you're probably wondering, well, why does all this matter? And that's a good question. And the answer is, the all-or-nothing approach, by its nature, assumes our broad contemporary understanding of error. It is reading back into the biblical text, as this is reading this understanding back into the biblical text, as opposed to letting those texts speak for themselves. Now, all texts, biblical or otherwise, are necessarily tied to their times, context, and the culture they come from, and are thus best interpreted in light of the author's intentions. As it was not possible for the biblical authors to intend the level of precision this all-or-nothing approach demands, it simply cannot be a good way to interpret scripture. And here are three quick examples of this from biblical texts themselves. Matthew 2.15 quotes Hosea 11.1 1 in reference to the Christ family freeing Egypt and says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So, Matthew reads Hosea as a messianic prophecy about Christ. However, Hosea 11 refers to the Exodus, not the Christ family. So, by contemporary standards, Matthew's guilty of taking Hosea out of context. Hosea isn't talking about Christ, but Matthew reframes the passage to make it seem like he is. There's also the apparent inconsistency between Acts 9-7 and Acts 22-9. Both tell the story of Paul's conversion. The problem is that in the first telling, 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, for they heard the voice but could see no one. Well, in the second, they saw the light but did not hear the voice of the one who spoke. Now, it cannot be that Paul's companions both heard the voice and did not hear the voice. Yet, Luke reports this apparent contradiction without issue, problem, or notation. He just says that's the way it is. And then there's Ephesians 4.8. Here, Paul is quoting from Psalm 68.18, saying, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The problem is that Psalm 68 doesn't match Paul's quotation. As the editors and translators of the Net Bible explain, it has sometimes been suggested that the author of Ephesians modified the text he was citing in order to better support what he wanted to say here. Such modifications are sometimes found in rabbinic exegesis from this and later periods. But it is also possible the author was simply citing a variant of Psalm 68 known to him, but which has not survived. They also go on to suggest that maybe Paul was quoting an early Christian hymn based on Psalm 68. So the problem here is that Paul simply feels free to change the wording of Scripture to make his point. This would be absolutely anathema to most Christians today, especially if you adopt the all-or-nothing approach. But Paul has no problem with it. Even if Paul simply had picked a now-lost variant that, that better suited his point, this still argues that Paul felt free to pick and choose between the variants. Again, anathema to many people today. And if he is quoting an early Christian hymn, then early Christianity had no problem playing fast and loose with the scripture they used in their songs. Although, to be fair, that's not all that different from most of today's worship songs. <laughs> so what we have here is evidence from both the context of the biblical authors and the biblical texts themselves that we have a much broader understanding of error than Christ and the biblical authors. We see error where they saw no problem. As the all-or-nothing approach needs a level of precision that it was not possible for the biblical authors to use, then this is a bad standard that imposes contemporary ideas of error on the text. Additionally, history argues that the early church did not view the authority of Scripture as grounded in having a perfectly preserved manuscript or text, but rather in having the authentic that is not significantly altered or changed, meaning that Christ and the authors of Scripture intended. We see this, for example, in the numerous textual variants of Scripture that were present prior to the 4th century AD. While there were doctrines and movements that the early church condemned as heretical, there is little or no evidence that it attempted to pursue a single, a single biblical manuscript. Rather, they seemed much more concerned with settling on and confirming the canon of Scripture. Thus, excuse me, thus we should not tie inerrancy to any physical text, but rather to the intended meaning of the authors of Scripture. Any manuscript, physical manuscript, may, in fact almost certainly will by its very nature, have problems. So rather, it is the meaning that Christ intended when he spoke of the kingdom of God, when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount, and when he told parables. That meaning is what is without error. The Sermon on the Mount that Matthew records is probably only the gist of what Christ taught and not a word-for-word -word transcription. And that's fine, because that's how life and language actually works. If scripture is authoritative because it is the very words of God, and it is, and God chose to give those words to a time and culture that assumes some fluidity in their text, then it seems to follow that God intended for there to be a sense of fluidity in the text that contains words. And thus, I can give you a three-part argument. One, God doesn't make mistakes. Two, God gave scripture to a culture that allowed for some fluidity in their text. Three, therefore God intended some fluidity in the text of scripture. The point here being, it's okay that we just have the gist of things. That's how life actually works. Thus, I want to say, while all views of inerrancy are right in their instincts, several stronger understandings of it miss the mark as they look to the text itself, whether copies or the original autographs, which are necessarily going to be imperfect as all physical texts are. There are still problems and issues that arise from the deeper understanding of inerrancy, but it seems much more faithful to the original intent of scripture. 
And finally, this all-or-nothing approach encourages people to fail to recognize the very important distinction between what Scripture says and their own interpretations. I saw someone else say it like this once. When you say, that's what the Bible says, what you actually mean is, that's what I think the Bible says. And fair enough, in many senses, what else can you do? But that should be the start of the conversation, not the end. Because the act of reading is necessarily one of interpretation. So any reading of any text is not going to be uncomplicated by interpretation, even if it's the Bible. This is the main danger. Excuse me. This is the main danger of the all-or-nothing approach, as it encourages people to fail to recognize that all interpretations of Scripture are shaped by the context of the interpreter, and thus we're all interpreting the text, just as those who think differently than you do. Thank you. Just as those who think differently than you do and disagree with you do. And I can supply examples of this later on in the Q&A if necessary. So to some of my points here, first, language in the biblical languages don't allow for the level of precision that the all-or-nothing approach requires. Second, the contemporary understanding of error that the all-or-nothing approach uses does not match up with the intentions of the biblical authors. And given the constraints they were working under, it's simply impossible that they could have been so precise. Third, inerrancy is best understood as residing in the intended meaning of Christ in the biblical authors. This adheres to the culture and context of the biblical authors and avoids many problems the all-or-nothing approach thrusts upon us. And this will naturally lead into inerrancy as a range, as many people will have different but still valid and reasonable approaches to it. And fourth, the all-or-nothing approach encourages people to fail to recognize the very important distinctions between the text and their own interpretations of it. This results in some people who cannot see their own interpretations may be flawed because those, they see those interpretations as identical to the scripture itself. And that's a very, very dangerous thing we want to avoid. Wait seconds left. All right, now to Dave for five minutes cross-examining. Right. Phil, thanks so much. I'm just going to jump into the questions. Uh, sorry. <laughs> well, Phil, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I think that was such a clear statement and excited to get to interact with all of you. Um, You're good. All right. Phil, let me just jump in here. So by defining inerrancy as a scale or range of concepts, what is the underlying purpose that you wish to accomplish in contending for this position? Uh, well, two things. First, it's a practical consideration to help us talk to each other about inerrancy and avoid the unintentional equivocation that simply plagues debates like this. Um, this is a, the first part of an essay I gave in the Society for Pentecostal Studies last year. Think of inerrancy as a range where it goes something like from the King James only list all the way to guys like John Shelby Song who don't actually even think scripture is true. Throw out those extremes because they're obviously ridiculous for reasons I can get into later if people really want me to. And then you're left with a range that's like strong inerrancy to weak inerrancy. So I would pick people like yourself as strong inerrantist, somebody like Greg Boyd who thinks that scripture records the misconceptions of the authors like a weak inerrantist, and then people in between. And with this range, we can then actually like talk to each other about it as opposed to just using the same word in equivocal senses. And secondly, I think due to the facts that contemporary understanding of error is broader than that of when the biblical texts were composed, and the limited precision of the biblical languages and the different standards of practices that the biblical authors work with, this should naturally lead to many different but also reasonable and valid approaches to inerrancy. I would equate this to different reasonable and valid interpretations of scripture, i.e., do you want to be an Arminian, a Calvinist, a Molinist, an Orthodoxist? Do you want to be a Sensationalist or a Pentecostal? Those are very, very important. Some of those are different. Yeah, well, they're all very, very important. Some would say those are all, you know, some of those are real, real, real. Sorry. Uh, well, I would say, broadly speaking, they're all 
reasonable approaches to scripture where you can find arguments for them and they should be at least prima facie given a hearing. And that's how I think we should treat a range of inerrancy because I think the facts naturally lend to that. So, um, so much for that answer. I think it was great. Um, I'm going to jump down here to a few of my questions that I've got here. Okay. Um, in John 17, 17, Jesus states, your word is truth. Now, do you agree with this statement, and how would you understand that? Oh, yeah, naturally I agree with that. Um, I do actually think, given the context of John and the fact that uh, Christ is praying for his disciples there, that there's a little bit more going on there than just Christ saying God's words are true. Rather, I think this is a, it would entail, excuse me, it would include that, but I think it's broader than that because Christ is identified as the word of God in John 1.1, 1, 1, and the context of the verse is Christ praying to the Father for his disciples before sending them out. So here, I think the word and the truth is referring to following Christ, being his disciple, living under his grace, things like that. And that, so it's not just the language being true, though it certainly would include that. Um, so I'm a, a former of the 1978 Chicago Statement. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to be to work where I work, both places actually. Uh, and so uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Could you kind of tell me what are some of the troubling aspects that you find with the 1978 Chicago Statement on biblical inerrancy? Well, I'd say generally most of it's pretty good. Um, I could actually go on for a long time about this, but the, the primary thing that I found when I looked at it that's troubling to me is I think it falls into that trap of conflating the interpretation of the text itself. And the best example of that is how it says right in there that um, if a follower of the Chicago Statement is never going to be able to affirm um, any interpretation of Genesis that allows for evolution, because it says right in there, that's just not allowed. And I'm not arguing that evolution is the right way to interpret Genesis. I'm actually fairly skeptical of that theory. But, but I'm very, very skeptical of any approach that says, you're never going to be able to affirm that. I don't think there should be any approach that just rules out anything unless it's flatly contradictory. All right, well, my last question here. Um, do you believe that the corruption of human culture and language through sin has thwarted God's work of inspiration? Uh, I guess I need to know more of kind of what you mean there. In the, in the sense of the Bible, no. In regards to other things, maybe yes, because uh, I can see how um, good. I can see people who aren't coming to God even though they should do their own sin. Um, so I, I, yeah, I need to know a little more about what okay. you mean there. Uh, let me jump to a different question no over problem. here. Um, One second. How can one know what is true? Within <laughs> 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 seconds. Should have started with it, right? <laughs> we didn't ever finish it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we will now move to the 15-minute negative things constructed from Dave. Uh, if I keep my thank yous brief, do I get them off the clock, or do I need to start with my thank you? you got to start with thank you, see, dude. All right. <laughs> thank you. Yep. <laughs> Here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab a, a pen, and you pop one, and I want you to write down some passages of Scripture. John 17, 17. John 16, 13. Matthew 22, 29, 
to 33 and John 8:31. The other thing I want you to do is this. Grab your phone, open up to the 1978 Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, because I believe much of my argument is, again, uh, supportive of that. But with that said, let me just jump into the debate proper. We're going to begin by defining the term inerrancy. And you've heard that kicked around, and maybe some of you looked it up, and, and that's a good thing if you did. Here's what I mean by inerrancy. Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine, morality, social, physical, or life sciences. Now, I believe this definition is a great definition because it summarizes scripture's teaching on itself. It, in other words, summarizes what, te- what Scripture teaches about itself. But some of you might find it odd, but I believe Scripture is actually the best standard for measuring its claims about itself. I believe that it is the only way for a Christian to be consistent when we approach Scripture. Because as Christians, we believe that Scripture is the ultimate authority in all things, as it comes from revelation from the triune, omniscient God. It can be understood, and it can be trusted. Yet I believe with conviction that the 1978 statement on your phone in front of you accurately summarizes Scripture's teaching on itself. We also define another term for you, and that is the term of scale or range of concepts. So what do I mean by that? When I interpret that definition, that's what you do in debate. Here's what I hear that as saying. By any, when I hear range or scale, any definition that is not consistent with the standard of inerrancy rooted in Scripture. I think all of those non-scriptural definitions should be rejected. I believe that the 1978 statement accurately summarizes Scripture's teachings about itself. Uh, Phil tonight needs to demonstrate this for you. From Scripture, he needs to show you that Scripture presents a dynamic understanding or a dynamic meaning when Scripture says, thus says the Lord. That's his burden. Let me also do this for you. Debate gets a little messy. Let me offer something very simple. I'm going to provide for you a criterion, a way for you to evaluate tonight's debate. When you look at all the facts, when you write them all down there, here's what I believe is most effective. Look at the look at the evidence that is presented from Scripture. Weigh which side uses Scripture in a consistent way, and who can provide more Scripture to affirm their position. Why do I do that? Because, as Christians, we submit to the authority of God. So based on the evidence put forward tonight, in this debate, you should be able to determine which position, on which side of the proposition is true or false. Let me offer four pieces of evidence to you. I'm going to look at the words of Christ, the words of the apostles, church history, and also contemporary scholars. So let's jump right in as you're writing this down. The first argument is that of Christ. Now, I believe that one's view of Scripture and one's view of inerrancy should be rooted foundationally and be consistent with what Jesus Christ says about Scripture. Don't we want to be like Christ? Well, what does he have to say on inerrancy? Friends, I believe the gospel communicates Christ's view of Scripture in a very clear way. The words of Christ should allow each and every one of us to see, right? Did he ever present the idea that there was anything in Scripture that was unclear or unable for us to understand. Now, in this brief survey, you're going to observe that Christ consistently teaches the historical narratives found in the Old Testament are accurate records of facts. We'll also see that the force and weight of Jesus' teaching depends upon the literal and historical accuracy of the Old Testament. 
So I'm going to buzz through a few of these. So let me just give them to you in again, a rather quick way. Here's, as we go upon our survey, what we see. Jesus affirms the historical narrative recorded in the Old Testament in Luke 11:51. He refers to Abel as having lived. Right? In Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 to 39, he refers to Noah as a real person. John 8, 56, he refers to Abraham as a real person, and the institution of circumcision as an actual historical event. John 7, 22, Matthew 10, 15, Luke 10, 12, he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah as actual historical places. Jesus refers to Moses as lifting up the serpent in the desert in John 3, 14. In other instances, Jesus speaks about David, about Solomon, about Elijah and Elisha. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 to 41, he says that Jonah spent three days in the belly of the whale. Jesus talks about these historical events, just like you and I would talk about World War II, JFK as a person, Andrew Jackson as a person. Friends, Jesus knew that the events of the Old Testament actually historically took place and they were recorded accurately and able for him to understand. Jesus affirms the entire sweep of the Old Testament canon in Luke chapter 11, verse 50 to 51. So when contending with the Sadducees, Jesus never called into question their appeal to Scripture. That's very notable. Every time they would appeal to Scripture, he never called into question. He never said, well, you don't understand that right, or... That's, un, that's unable to be understood. Excuse me. He never said, that's unable to be understood, so I'll give you a pass. He actually said, no, you don't understand Scripture right, which presupposes that there's a right understanding that each and every one of us can have access to if we follow the example and the position that Christ held. Jesus said in John 10, 35, what scriptures cannot be broken. And he said, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law. Matthew 5, 18. Friends, Jesus surely would have explained any mixing of error with truth in the scripture had he ever thought that it was there. He had no problem pausing and pushing against the social trends of the day when there was a problem. So if there was a problem in scripture... And he didn't believe it was accurately recorded or authoritative or clear. He certainly would have presented such a position and corrected a people who thought wrongly about Scripture. Let me provide my second argument. The argument is from the apostles. Anyone who's read the New Testament knows there's a whole bunch of Old Testament in the New Testament. In fact, there's almost 1,600 verses that are quoted in the New Testament of the Old Testament, about a tenth of its content, actually. Friends, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, what? All scripture is theopneustos, God breathed. Now, Paul is using the term there, graphe, which is what was generally used when people would talk about the Old Testament. But here's the thing. Paul writes Timothy towards the end of his life. He's familiar with the writings of other apostles. In fact, Peter, at the end of 2 Peter, says what about Paul? Some people twist Paul's words like they do with the rest of Scripture. Further, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, Paul writes this, I am writing to you commands of the Lord. 
It's clear if you read the book of Hebrews or you read the book of Acts what Paul had a reverence for Scripture. When he stood on the hill in Athens and he said in Acts 17 that these folks needed to repent, he stood on Scripture. When he stood in the temples, he quoted Scripture. For Paul, Scripture was God's word and it was clear and it was understandable. And if there was an error in it, he certainly would have corrected it. Or he certainly would have mentioned there's a problem with this. Let's look to our third argument tonight, and that is church history. Uh, I know Phil appealed to church history. Man, I love church history. Uh, We can make sure that we study church history. It is a good thing for us to understand. And so what did our fathers and mothers in the church think about God's word historically? Allow me to just quote and survey again a few individuals from church history and what their words were on Scripture. Augustine wrote this. Only those books which are called canonical have I learned to give honor so that I believe most firmly that no author in these books made any error. Further, Jerome writing around the same time, said this about Scripture. When you really are instructed in divine Scriptures and have realized its laws and its testimonies are the bonds of truth, then you can contend with your adversaries. Thomas Aquinas wrote this. It is heretical, heretical, to say that any falsehood whatsoever is contained either in the Gospels or in any canonical scripture. Luther wrote this. This is our foundation. Where the Holy Scripture establishes something, that must be believed, else what would become of the Bible? Calvin spoke about Scripture in this way. He said, Scripture is the infallible record, the inerring standard, the inerring certainty. You see, I believe that it is clear that the church throughout history has held Scripture to be an objective, unerring, standard, Calvin, Luther, Augustine. Let me look at some contemporary strangers. Why are we here tonight? Why did you want to know about two people and their view of Scripture, right? Phil says he agrees with inerrancy. Dave says he agrees with inerrancy. He must disagree with Phil or something, right? Why is this such a big issue? What's an interesting thing? In today's world, we have many people, as noted by Norman Geisler, who are saying, oh, yes, I affirm inerrancy. In fact, today, if you were a biblical scholar, I know we've got some folks who work in academics here, and you wanted to submit a paper to the International Society of Christian Apologetics, you'd have to sign a document, the 1978 Chicago Statement. But the problem with that goes like this. There are people like Mike Lycona. In his book recently, he said that John 18 didn't happen. Matthew 27, where the people, the saints, raised from the dead. No, that's just myth. And then he says, yeah, and I accept inerrancy. Friends, there must be dividing lines on words. Words have meaning. If not, we would be standing here going, and you'd all say, But you're not doing that, are you? 
<laughs> Moeller, as and I'm glad that you quoted Moeller, and man, I would align myself with Moeller all day. I'd be glad to align myself with Moeller. Was Wesley the other one? Because no, I wouldn't align myself with him very closely. He's got the soteriology wrong. <laughs> but friends, uh, I do believe that inerrancy is a historic position of the church. If the church has always believed that God's word is clear and true, objective truth, why are we questioning it now? It's very interesting. In Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, the one I had was published in 2001. That's around the time that I was studying in seminary, right? And Grudem notes in one of his footnotes on the chapter on inerrancy that for years, people would use the term infallible. They would say, Scripture is infallible. But something happens, and if you know a little bit of what occurred around the 1920s, uh, 1930s, and probably a little bit before that, you had individuals like Schleiermacher who would say, yeah, God's word is true. Or Karl Barth who would say, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's, it's infallible. But what did they really mean? They didn't really mean the same things that Louis Burkhoff meant when he said that Jesus objectively walked. They said, oh, that's a nice spiritual truth. Friends, we have to be clear on our definitions. Now, Phil has offered in the past, and this is where things really hit the road. Phil has offered in the past that philosophy is able to do a meta-analysis or discipline criticism. And this assesses inerrancy from a position that is outside of Scripture. I want you to pay close attention today. What is Scripture's teaching on its truth, and is it consistent? You see, when we import views and critique Scripture from an outside authority without submitting to the authority of Scripture, we've acted inconsistently with the way Scripture interacts with itself. So you're going to hear tonight, and I think you've already heard some of it, outside sources of logic, human reasoning, are going to be imported on Scripture and used to critique Scripture. But friends, the challenge then has to be on film. Can he show you from Scripture that outside sources were used to critique Scripture internally? You see, as Christians, we believe when God said, thus says the Lord, or when a prophet said, thus says the Lord, it actually meant something. You see, if we critique that from a source foreign to Scripture, we've acted outside of Scripture. So the big challenge is, can Phil show you that outside sources can be imported to critique Scripture and analyze it? And I would say no, because we never see that happening in Scripture. So I presented these four arguments. Christ's view of Scripture, believe you found it inerrant, the apostles, church history, and finally, contemporary scholars. All right. Sorry, let me reset mine too. All right, we will now move to a five-minute cross-exam from the affirmative. Oh, I'm ready. Again. Okay, so I'm quite happy to agree with you that Christ, the New Testament authors, and the Church Fathers all had a very high view of Scripture. That's immediately obvious. But why would you consider this evidence in favor of your view as opposed to mine? I would say this is indeterminate evidence, as it's what we should expect on my view and on your view. Well, I would disagree that it's indeterminate evidence. Um, I think the challenge is for you to show that Christ and the apostles believed that there was some type of dynamic view 
of scripture ever? Did they have this changing understanding? Like when they say, thus says the Lord, did they say, well, there's a few different meanings to that? Or do they like, no, God said it. Scripture is true because God's character and I can trust what God says. And therefore I understand it. And so I would say what I've presented is certainly evidence that there's great clarity Right, you have these statements from Christ and the apostles that say, "No, no, God says, God says," and that has a meaning that doesn't fluctuate. It has an, an objective meaning. Like you, you write a blog, you have a podcast. When you say something, you expect it to resonate, right? You can write a blog and you can post it, and a hundred years later, you know, I'm, you know, uh, I'm probably assuming that you know none of us are going to be around in hundred years, right? <laughs> bet you that that meaning is still going to be there. Your intended meaning is still present. Someone can understand that. And so I would say, no, from what I've presented, I've demonstrated that there is a objective meaning that we can get to. Okay. So do you agree that the best way to interpret any text is in light of the author's intentions, and why or why not? Yeah. This is certainly uh, what I believe. In fact, I just love this. This is, again, and I'm going to use some theological words, hermeneutics, exegesis. There are rules of hermeneutics that we can apply to any text. And I would demonstrate to you that the rule of hermeneutics that we have, the historical grammatical approach, which is the Protestant view. And Luther, right, would have been one of the folks who looked back and said, ah, early church fathers used this approach. We got away from it. That's what we needed, the Reformation. And likewise, he saw that in the text and used that as the standard. So I would say the, the historical grammatical, and you know, I can give you the seven rules to follow on that. But uh, yes, we can understand the text, and we can use rules of hermeneutics and exegesis that we find in Scripture itself. So how did you come to determine or decide that it is the case that that's the best way to interpret a text is in light of authorial intention? God told me in his word. He demonstrated it to us clearly. And we can know that. He showed it to us. So that's exactly how I know. How exactly did he show you that authorial intention is the right way to interpret text in Scripture? Because he demonstrated it when the authors of Scripture, referring to Scripture, did the same thing. When Paul stands, or she did, when Peter stands there in Acts chapter 2 and gives a sermon on the day of Pentecost, he's using historical grammatical exegesis of text. When Jesus stands in Matthew and reads from Isaiah 53, or not Isaiah 53, Isaiah, right? He's using historical grammatical exegesis of text. Okay, so let me try a little different way there. What criterion and methods and reasons did you use to come to decide that that is what Peter is doing there? How did yeah, I you looked at scripture and I saw that. And I also trusted people and the Holy Spirit because, again, Christ is really clear in John 16 that the Holy Spirit's going to guide us in all truth. I stated that text to you all and knew that it would come up at John 16. What, if you look at it, what is Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will guide us in all truth? So a believer who, again, has the Holy Spirit, they're not going to have perfect understanding of every single text. I certainly would say we're going to be impacted by sin. And it is going to cause us to prioritize certain things. And unfortunately, we're always going to be working to get away from tradition. But certainly, I see it in the text. And not only do I see it in the text, the church has. God's left us with a tool, right? And so we can see that. So you, if I'm understanding what you're saying, you adhere to authorial intention because you read scripture and that's what you see Peter, etc., etc., doing in Scripture, and you just saw it there, essentially. Yeah, God made us communicating beings. 
right? Uh, again, uh, Imago Dei, we're all made in God's image. God is a communicating being. He communicates to us. Um, man, Romans chapter 1, he communicates to everybody. He spoke to everyone. Everyone was, is without an apologia, right? Uh, Jesus uh, is, again, God's word incarnate, right? He came, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, that what long ago, in many ways, the prophets and fathers were spoke spoke from God to us. Now Jesus Christ has come and spoken. Okay, so, so yeah, real quick, is do you believe scriptures received either read, heard, or understood through meeting time? Like time? You bet I do. <laughs> would, you, would you like that <laughs> answer? You can answer longer if it does quite all right. Okay, yes, I certainly believe that scripture, there is only, again, God is a communicating being. Why would we say that? Well, John 17, 3, Jesus says, Now glorify yourself with me, Father, with me, John 17, 5. Now glorify yourself with me, Father, with the glory I had with you before the world was. How are they glorifying themselves? Well, they're communicating. Part of glorifying. So God made us communicating beings and has given us a medium of communication, and we can trust that, right? Uh, when Moses walked down the temple, down the down the hill, he had, again, a written text, right? It was written with what? God's own finger. Go back there and look. Right, so God does use means. We'll now move to the seven minute affirmative rebuttal. We'll start with time to start. Okay, I'm great. So, as I said earlier in the questions, I'm happy to agree that Christ, the New Testament authors, and the church fathers all have a very high view of Scripture. But this is insufficient evidence as it fits both the claim I'm making and the claim David's making. If I'm right, we're going to see a very high view of Scripture right from the start. If David's right, we'll also see a very high view of Scripture right from the start. So this doesn't really tell us anything with regards to our debate here tonight. Now, I want you to also notice that the strongest citation today made in support of the all-or-nothing view come from relatively recent scholars like the 78 Chicago Statement, Warfield, Moeller, Calvin, and so on. This is evidence that the recent theologians and scholars are holding to a much broader sense of error, like I argued earlier. If the all-or-nothing view of inerrancy had always been the imposition of Christianity, then we should expect to see this view articulated by the New Testament authors and such right from the start. But we don't. So what I'm arguing that Dave is doing here is a type of unintentional equivocation, and I do believe he's doing this in good faith without malice, as he's reading this all-or-nothing view back into the authors of Scripture in the early church. And here's an analogy to help explain this problem. The government of ancient Athens was a democracy. And before it became an empire, the government of ancient Rome, of ancient Rome was a republic. Now, our government is often referred to as both a democracy and a republic. Now, while all three governments have very similar elements, they are absolutely not the same thing. Ancient Athens and ancient Rome both had political and legal ideas as that we know he was barbaric, and there are many elements of our government they would think are stupid, and there are many elements of our government that are stupid. <laughs> so, this is akin to what's going on with this debate here. Just as Athenian democracy is not the same thing as U.S. democracy, so the all-or-nothing inerrancy is not the same thing as what the New Testament authors wrote. This all-or-nothing view of scripture is actually a relatively recent theological development that arose in part due to the challenges of German higher criticism of the 19th century. As Michael Burr, the Australian biblical theologian and distinguished research professor of theology at Houston Baptist University says, there were evangelicals before the Chicago Statement who held a high view of scripture, but did not operate with the same grammar and conceptualization of inerrancy. And referring to this all-or-nothing approach, Burr also says that, this view of inerrancy has not existed for all time and in every place where evangelical 
churches have confessed that Jesus is Lord. What Christians said about Scripture in the past might have been very similar to the all-or-nothing approach, but they were never absolutely the same. And this also points to another reason to be skeptical of saying the all-or-nothing approach is the only way to go. A very good rule of thumb in philosophy and theology is that originality is a sign of error. It's always possible that you might think of something that no one in the 3,000-plus years of philosophy or the 2,000-plus years of Christian theology has, but it's really, really unlikely. If you're the only one who thinks it, most likely you're wrong. Hence, we should always be very skeptical of new or recent theological developments and demand a very high burden of proof from them. Now, this doesn't show the all-or-nothing approach is wrong. It just gives us cause to be skeptical. Now, further, David also said that Scripture is the standard for measuring claims about itself. This is prima facie circular reason, i.e. he's using scripture to evaluate scripture. It's a, it's a logical fallacy. It's exactly the same thing as if a politician comes to you and says, you should trust me. And then you say, well, why should I trust you? And he says, because I told you so. Um, David also said the weighing mechanism or criterion for evaluating this debate is the preponderance of evidence. So if we put those two statements together, the only evidence you can accept is evidence from scripture itself. But notice he didn't actually adhere to this standard as he then went on to cite theologians and philosophers and church history to support his position. Now, church history, theologians and philosophers, even spectacularly good ones like Aquinas, are not scripture. But David is attempting to use them to support his claims about inerrancy, and this violates the standard he laid down for himself. The problem here is that no one can actually evaluate anything in such a circular fashion. That's why it's a logical fallacy. It's just not possible to do so, and that's why David had to start appealing to church history and tradition, despite his earlier claim that scripture is his only standard. He has to do this because in virtue of being a human being, we all have to use things that are distinct from X to justify X. So, yeah, I am evaluating inerrancy from another discipline, but it's impossible for me not to do this, and it's impossible for anyone not to do this. You have to read and hear scripture through your senses, and the question of how you can trust your senses falls under philosophy. You have to comprehend and understand scripture with your mind, and such questions of epistemology fall under philosophy. So due to the fact that all of us are human beings and the Bible is a written work, you have to receive scripture through mediums that fall under the discipline of philosophy. Now, here's an analogy to help explain this. I have to wear glasses or contact lenses to see. Here's a pair of my glasses. They'll help me see. Conversely, here's a pair of sunglasses I sometimes wear. Now, if I'm trying to read the Bible, the glasses are probably going to help me a lot more than the sunglasses. The point here is that when we are reading anything, including the Bible, we all wear glasses. These glasses are the philosophical, cultural, and theological ideas and biases we bring with us as we read. Some of them are probably going to help us better read the text, and some are going to get in the way. But what you absolutely should not do is pretend these glasses don't exist and claim, I'm just reading the Bible, or my standard for evaluating the Bible is the Bible. Claiming that scripture needs to be above philosophy is itself a philosophy. It's a philosophy that argues that scripture is superior to philosophy. It just turns out to be a rather bizarre and somewhat contradictory philosophy. Rejecting this claim doesn't stop you from having your own perspectives and philosophical outlooks. The danger isn't it now that you're ignorant of your own biases and perspectives as you haven't examined them. So you're simply doing philosophy, but doing it badly because you're unaware. As uh, the philosopher Karl Popper said, all men and women are philosophers, and they are, all men and women are philosophers. If they are not conscious of having philosophical problems, they have philosophical prejudices. Most of these they take for granted. They have absorbed them from their intellectual environment or from tradition. Since few of these theories are consciously held, they are prejudices in the sense that they are held without critical examination. 
even though they may be, be of great importance for the practical actions of people and for their whole life. So when David says he is not submitting scripture to human grace and discipline, I have to say to him with all respect, and I know he's saying this without malice or dishonesty, but no, you're not. All of us are doing that all the time. Denying this does not help us better read God's word. Rather, it hinders us as we then have to pretend we're not wearing the glasses that we all are all the time when we read anything. So a few things I want you to pay attention to. Phil is definitely wrong about this being a recent development. Anyone know who Calvin is? Luther? Anyone know who Augustine is? Yeah, those guys, Augustine's third century. Problem with that. Now also, notice what he did here too. He tells you that philosophy is the ultimate authority. But he gets on to me for saying the Bible is the ultimate authority. Now that's an interesting thing, isn't it? So we need to be worshiping philosophy and philosophical thinkers, not the God who has spoken. There's a problem. When you have an ultimate authority, because Phil does have an ultimate authority, right? It's your three-pound brain. So my three-pound brain or the omniscient God who has spoken clearly. We go to our three-pound brain. Oh, wait, what do we circle back to? Philosophy. He presents a fallacious position as well. According to what standard is it fallacious for you to circle back to philosophy to get on to me for circling back to what beginning with God. So that said, let me also just notice that I've got a few different things here that I want to get to and I want to respond to each of his arguments. So again, his idea that biblical languages are imprecise. Friends, scripture derives its authority not from someone who doesn't know how to communicate, a perfect communicator. And God has perfectly revealed his word. Notice again, when scripture is preached, by New Testament people, they're never saying, oh yeah, but there's this one text or there's a problem with. For Jesus Christ, a text that did have textual variants in it, by the way, was still completely useful and did contain God's truth. Now, again, Bill tells me that I am equivocating. No, no, friends. I'm telling you that there is an objective standard for Scripture that we can arrive at. Otherwise, we're left in the dark. So either God has spoken and we can understand it, when we stand before him, we can say, you know what? I didn't understand what you told me. I don't think that that's what's going to work. So again, the idea that biblical language is imprecise. Friends, Jesus affirmed the total grasp of scripture. Phil does not feel today that language can adequately, adequately convey meaning in the Bible, but he can do it in a debate. There is an inconsistency there. Second, contemporary understandings of error. Friends, read the Chicago Statement Article chat, Article 3. It's really, really clear. Again, we're not going to import standards of error on Scripture. What happens when we do that? We're importing. So the very thing that I'm, again, telling you you've got to watch out for, we can avoid. We should avoid. And inerrancy should be clear enough so that we can do that. Again, Bill continues, we often see error where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saw no problem. No, Christians recognize that Scripture is inherently linked to the character of God. We harmonize God's Word. We use historical, grammatical exegesis to understand what God has said, and we can arrive at that. Phil has put forward, again, three different statements, right? Uh, he gives three different uh, pieces of evidence where he says, see, 
the temporary error wouldn't wouldn't work here. So I have two bags in my book, uh, Geisler's Big Book of Bible Difficulties, and of course uh, I have Gleason Archer's Encyclopedia of Biblical Difficulties. Guess what? They are a lot harder difficult text to reconcile than the Hosea and Matthew, the Acts chapter twenty, uh, chapter nine and twenty-two, and likewise, there's a lot harder ones to deal with uh, than the Ephesians one. And I'll be happy to give you some great scholars on that and some biblical language components that I think would be really helpful. Uh, jumping down to this third argument, that inerrancy resides in the intended meaning of the authors. So let me share this with you. I believe that it demonstrates a flawed understanding of the locus of inspiration, right? The locus of inspiration, where inspiration occurred, is in what? The original text. Thus, inerrancy in the original manuscripts and not the transmission of the text, is, excuse me, the uh, inerrancy is in the original manuscripts and not the transmission of the text itself. Now, Phil and I disagree on the locus of inspiration. Uh, I would say that the locus of inspiration is the written text as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit is God, God cannot lie. God is going to be as precise as we need to know the things that we need to know. Well, we always have agreement on everything. No, why? Well, according to Phil, it's because our minds are, are not thinking rightly according to philosophy. But according to Scripture, it's because our minds are impacted by sin. But guess what? God didn't leave us without his sure and ready word. His fourth argument is that this, again, he spends a lot of time here. The all-or-nothing approach encourages people to invest their own interpretation of Scripture. All right, number one. All-or-nothing approach, I believe, is somewhat of a pejorative label. Right? I would tell you that the label that should be is the consistent biblical approach to understanding God's word. We can call it inerrancy. We can call it infallibility. In fact, it was called infallibility until a bunch of scholars in the 60s, Schleiermacher, and also some going back even farther than that, uh, people like Boltman or people like Karl Barth. And if you're familiar with Karl Barth, those folks would say, yeah, uh, I'm going to import a neo-Orthodox view that the, the truth is available in the text. The truth isn't in the text, but it's available. The Chicago Statement said, no, those folks don't really believe that everything God has said is true, and we need to distinguish ourselves. You know, no one was talking about the Trinity until about 325 AD when this guy named Arius started walking around and singing songs that Jesus really wasn't one with the Father or wasn't the same substance as the Father. He was a special creation. Guess what? In 325 AD, they had a council, and they said, we need to correct this. This is a problem. Friends, the Nashville Statement was written in 2016. Are you familiar with the Nashville Statement? 30 According to Phil, we need to reject the Nashville Statement because it didn't show up until 2016. According to Phil, we need to, rec we need to reject the Danvers Statement. We need to reject the Chicago Statement because it was No, we deal with and we make statements as we deal with the controversies of our day. This is something that was clear. I cited Luther, Aquinas. Um, I cited Calvin, right? Those folks said things about God's word being objectively true. And so, is God's word objectively right. true? All right, we will now move into a 15-minute time of open dialogue, which we kicked off by a question from myself and from Adam. And just to let you guys know, during this time, so you, you saw the cross-examine, that was pretty...
we were going to be pretty rough there this time. We'll allow a little bit more give and take. So could get a little bit more heat, and that's why we're here. Um, we will be here. There, we like but, it. Yeah, <laughs> just letting the audience know, we will allow, like, you know, usually whenever you're watching a debate on YouTube, you kind of start getting mad because people start trying to talk over each other. We might hit that, and we're going to try to keep that to a minimum, but we're going to allow a little bit more loosey-goosey every time. We've got a couple questions that we'll start with. Hopefully that will cause you guys to start asking questions to each other and you've got 15 minutes um, whenever we start with the um, with the time. So I'll just start with my timer too so I know when, when I can yeah. go. Let's go start. So the question I have is, we've talked about precision on both sides. Um, where does precision come into our understanding of inerrancy? And at what degree of precision do we determine what an error is and how do we know that degree of precision? Yeah, it depends greatly on the context of what you're doing. Great. If you're reading a uh, technical manual on how to uh, fix a car or something, error is pretty obvious and apparent there. When I say to my wife, I'm going to be home around 4 o'clock, did I lie or make an error if I'm home at 3.55? No, the language isn't precise. And my point is that the biblical languages were written in a time and period when, excuse me, the texts were written in languages in a time or period when Things were just a lot more precise. We're far, far more precise now due to the rise of science and the way our language works and things like that. And we are importing that back on the biblical text is what I'm, one of the main claims I'm making there. At least lots of people are, and I'm trying to say we should stop that. So I believe I'm going to defer to Article 13 of the Chicago Statement, right, where it says that we do allow... Uh, and again, I'm using that statement because I think, you know, it's, it's the ETS statement. I'm also part of the International Society of Christian Apologetics. And, of course, at Spurgeon College, you have to affirm those things. So that's where I am. And I'm not there because I want a job or because I want to be a part of a club. Right? I'm there because I read it and I've studied it. And I said, man, I, I really think that they accurately reflect this. So levels of precision, yeah, uh, we do live in a much more precise term. And we need to guard importing uh, levels of precision and saying that scripture is false. But here's the thing a Christian is not going to do that because we're going to harmonize the text. So, if, like, if we jump to the Acts uh, chapter 9 and, and Acts chapter 22 example, am I right in saying 22 or is it, or is it 27? Right? It's Acts 9 and 22. Okay, yeah, there you go. Acts 9, uh, verse 7, and Acts 22, verse. Uh, we jump to that text, right? Now, if I'm a non-believer, I'm going to say, ah, there's a contradiction there. <laughs> that God, he doesn't, he doesn't exist because he contradicts himself. But I'm a Christian, I'm going to say, oh, God doesn't lie. To contradict oneself would be to lie. Therefore, I'm going to harmonize the text. And again, Christians throughout the history of the church have worked to, to harmonize the text to the very best of our ability. And we would continue to do that. And I would say everyone should do that. You know, and, so, and, an error, and someone who is an inerratist would certainly say, yeah, man, uh, I'm going to harmonize that text. I don't see a problem there. So I would want to argue that harmonization actually supports the view I'm doing because Luke reported. Let's assume that Luke was a well-educated Christian who knew what he was doing and would recognize a contradiction because we all recognize contradictions. Yeah. So why did he write it that way? Well, it obviously isn't the case that Paul's companions both did and did not hear the voice. So he just wrote it that way for whatever reason. Maybe at one point uh, it was... The story was told one way, and another point it was told the other way. He had conflicting sources, and he just wrote it that way. 
But we know it didn't happen that way. But the fact that Luke wrote it that way and did not himself try to harmonize it, didn't make a note in there saying, my source is conflicted here or something like that, but tells me yeah. he didn't see this as a problem or a big deal like we this, all do though, now. The problem, though, is this. If we accept a fluctuating or dynamic view, I hope that doesn't sound mature to say dynamic views, that, that's, that's I hope is all right, a dynamic view of inerrancy. If we say, oh, there's a scale or a range of inerrancy, not, a, not an objective or precise meaning. We then have folks say, no, no, I believe inerrancy, but there is, and you know, happens all over it in certain seminaries. Uh, yeah, I believe that God's word is inerrant, but the beauty of God's word is in the contradictions. That's where we really see the beauty of God. But I believe in inerrancy. No, when we have a precise definition of inerrancy, we say, that's not inerrancy. And we know that's not inerrancy, and don't lie. And so we've seen, actually, again, uh, Lycona is a great example, right? And um, I don't know how familiar you are with Lycona. He got kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention because a book that he wrote, right? He was the director of apologetics for the Southern Baptist Convention. He wrote a book, said, no, that's not really true. In John 18, when Jesus says, I am, and they fall down, eh, they're exaggerating the story. Kind of making it fairly simple. Like uh, Matthew 27, when it says the, guy, the dead guys got up, nah, that didn't really happen. He was using a genre there. Uh, but I believe in inerrancy. You know what the people sometimes convention said? You don't believe in inerrancy. You just said that God's word lied. And so he didn't say it lied if he thinks that's the genre. Now, he could be wrong, but if the biblical authors were writing with a genre of that time that enabled certain things like that. No, 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 let me finish. That enabled certain things like that. But that's not a lie any more than when I write a poem about my wife and I like compare her to the sun, because that's the genre convention. Now, I don't know if that is the genre convention. That's a legitimate question that should be discussed, debated, and pursued. But it's not the same thing as saying the gospel authors lied if that is a genre convention that was used at the time. So, according, and you know this, third law of logic is, again, the law of non-contradiction. So either God's word is right, and dead guys did get up in Matthew 27, or Jesus really did say, I am, and they fell down, or that didn't happen. But it seems like, I don't want to misrepresent you, you're saying, now we can accept like Hono's view and that those things didn't happen and call it inerrancy. No, I'm saying, Man, we no, can't I'm do saying that. maybe. I'm, I, I'm not in a position to know whether or not the genre considerations he's attempting to bring are and are appropriate to apply to the gospel. I don't have that education or training. I'm saying that it isn't wrong to do that if that was <coughs> any more than when you would apply like the law of contradiction to a poem I've written. I would say to you, well, that's ridiculous. You're being kind of foolish there. So, again, it never seems that throughout church history ever, and man, you can pick up Calvin's commentary, or Luther's commentary, you can pick up, uh, I believe you can get Augustine's commentary uh, on Matthew. Does Augustine believe that? Wait a second. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians when he says, if Jesus didn't rise, then we're without hope. We're the biggest fools ever. You see, according to Lycona and those who would affirm that, that perspective of inerrancy, Maybe Jesus didn't, really didn't get up. Maybe some of those other stories are just, you know, writing in the genre. No one in church history has ever viewed them as that. Paul never viewed them as that. Uh, no one in the early church viewed those things as that. In fact, probably when they read Matthew 27, they go, oh yeah, my buddy Bob. I know he was the guy who got up a few years ago. That's why I know that's true. 
Probably not Bob. <laughs> what you did there, though, is you slid from then again arguing against this genre concept to arguing as to why it's wrong. And I'm saying, well, maybe it is wrong, but you don't get to then just flat out rule it out wholesale like you were doing beforehand. And if you want to argue that that's wrong, that's a good discussion. Things like that could be, or right, that, that could be happen more. But you slid from arguing that we shouldn't even consider the possibility that this genre is, is the case to arguing, therefore, it's wrong. Again, I would say that's the that's where it gets tricky. And I know we're going to have, you know, we're, we're, this is one of the things we don't want to make sure we don't want to get things lost in nuance, and that's so e so easy to do. And so I want to make sure that I'm not doing that. My real problem is, do we say that the Bible is inerrant, and then we can say, yeah, but there can be contradictions, and there's multiple folks who are going to ETS actually and saying, yeah, there's things that aren't true in the Bible. But I believe in I, you know, I believe in inerrancy. No, they don't. We have a tool for measuring what is true. And again, you know, if we jump to the John 17, 17, sanctify them by your word, your word is truth. Wait a second. What was God's word? Truth for Jesus. What was true? It was an objective standard. God's word was sufficient and reliable, clear and authoritative. Right, again, the church has believed for years, I mean, since its inception, and again, I'm not importing this. Uh, again, this is based, if you've read Calvin's Institutes, right, he makes it clear. God's word is authoritative. God's word is sufficient. God's word is clear. God's word is necessary. These tenets are clear. Like, and guess what? Guess who, guess who Calvin is quoting? Augustine. So 500 years ago and then 1,700 years ago. Wait a second. We can look at things that were written in the early church. When you're reading the epistle of Polycarp to the church at Ephesus, right? Is Polycarp, when he's quoting John, does he ever say like, well, you know, John could have could have got this wrong? No. And we can look back at the exegesis of 1717 from, from someone like Aquinas. And we can be like, oh, ooh, they said true. What does that mean? I'm an objective, objective standard. Law of identity, you know that, right? Something is or isn't, right? Law of the excluded middle. So you're, you're applying that inappropriate. The law of identity applies to things that are true. Something <laughs> is true or is not true. That is objectively the case. And that is right. not objectively the case always in our minds because we don't understand things completely. It is not always the case when we're talking about them because language is imprecise and imperfect. We can make statements that are partially true and partially false all the time. It is objectively the case that I am sitting here in this room where I am not. It is not necessarily objective the case when somebody talks about it that they're telling you the whole truth, the all truth, and nothing but the truth all the time and in every way. And unless I deeply misunderstood you, what you're saying is it has to be that Scripture is telling you the whole truth, the, all the truth, and nothing but the truth all the time and in every way. And that's just not how language works. Go read the Psalms. There's contradictions all over them, and it doesn't matter because it's poetry. But the historical grammatical approach. example in Mark. But mustard seed is not the smallest seed. But the historical grammatical approach. The historical grammatical approach looks at Psalms, like, and it says, "Oh, that's a Psalm." I mean, gosh, you know, I'm teaching through Proverbs, right? And Proverbs makes a lot of these like generalized statements. You know, the first thing you do in, in your Old Testament class, those of you who've been in an Old Testament class, right? You get to the writings. Your teacher says, this is a generic category of writing. We know that. Why? We can evaluate it. Well, how do we know? Well, we see the way that it was treated, right? Why is it acceptable to do that in the case of 
Proverbs and Psalms, but not in the genre and the Gospels then. The genre and the gospel, why is it not acceptable to do that? Yeah, why is it okay to So that would cause them to contradict one another. Here's <coughs> what does Luke say at the beginning of his gospel? He writes this to Theophilus and says, What? I've investigated these things. Okay. Mark's gospel begins. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They're written in an objectively true manner. They're written, what Luke especially, is written as a biography. Right? He's done the research, dude. He tells us. right. So if all of Matthew is simply some, if there's a way to pay, play fast and loose with generic categories, making objective facts, after you get the problem, you get to a real problem. If when John wrote John 18, and he was just making a generic, he was he was writing in a generic category of, of bios, right? Because that's some of the argument that, that like Cohen would put forward. He's writing in bios. When does John go from biography to bios? And you know what? Like Cohen can't tell you. And no one else can. Why? Because they've imported standards, the same thing that you've said you're against. That's why we've got to be Really? Well, I really never said I was against standards. When did you pick that up? No, importing. Importing. Yeah, yeah. It's, we should all do our little best to not import our own biases, philosophical, theological, whatever, and read them back in the scripture. We need to do our level best to read them in light of the authorial intention in their times, context, and culture. And where I'm, I'm having a hard time with the, what you're proposing is this all-or-nothing approach just does not fit with what we know of the culture, time, and context in which the Gospels were written. I can give you other examples of history. No, no. What I, I think you're misrepresenting. It was very common practice then that people would just give the gist of what was, was their teacher taught yeah. them. And Jesus that was That's, yeah. Jesus Christ does that all the time when he's summarizing the Old Testament and other <laughs> writings. That's why I looked at... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is an example because it's very unlikely that that's a word-for-word -word transcription of what Jesus taught. It's probably a bullet point or a summary of what he taught. Let's just import that hermeneutic on John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. Well, John doesn't really mean that in the beginning was the word. He means something else. The word dwells among us. Well, he doesn't really mean that what, Jesus what dwells that? among us. I'm not saying that at all. No, no. What I'm saying is if that's the hermeneutic that we want to import, we want to say, you know... They couldn't make objectively true, clear statements. I'm using, I'm basically using, you know, what I'm doing is I'm using the same hermeneutic that people like, like Kona use when they start saying, I'm going to evaluate the scripture as it's in this generic category that I've made up, or maybe that I've seen in a few places. I'm going to import it here. The problem is we begin to pick and choose what is objectively true. Yeah, but here's the deal. Lycona says he's an inerrantist. Is Lycona an inerrantist? When he says that John 18 didn't really happen, that Matthew 27 didn't happen? According to Lycona, yeah. But according to Scripture, no. And so Phil here would say, I'm going to accept Lycona's position on inerrancy as a valid position on inerrancy. That's a possible one, just as I accept your one as a possible one, as I accept Greg Boyd's one as a possible one, because there's all this but I want to get to see what Scripture says about Your position is possibly valid, just as this position is possibly valid, we should argue and discuss about it. Kind of like what we're trying to do yeah. now. Okay. Well, I hope we're having it. So I mean, I have time. time. Oh, sorry. 
thank you to Vaders for being awesomely cordial during that little yeah. bit of a bump around. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll get to the next minutes. Okay, uh, it, my turn, right? Yep. We will now move to the five-minute negative closing statement. Phil, I really have a great point. No, we disagree. Uh, Christians do disagree. Uh, but we want to go back to what? We want to go back to Scripture and evaluate what it says. Can we do that? Well, I would tell you yes, 100% why. Because God spoke. God spoke. He spoke clearly. He spoke sufficiently. He spoke in a way that we could understand. Guess, guess what? God used normal means to communicate to us. And we can have access to that. But the character of God's word is inherently linked to the character of God. So when we come to this position where we say, you know, I'm going to accept folks like Lycona as affirming the Bible is true. Does Lycona really affirm that the Bible is objectively true? No, he imports an outside standard onto the text. How do I know that? Because the word shows me. There are basically four straight-up arguments here, right? Language. Language, it seems, and I don't want to put words in Phil's mouth, it seems from Phil's position that language is an inadequate transporter of meaning. And I would say, according to what? Not according to God. Remember, Jesus never said, well, I forgive you guys for not understanding that. No, he said, you don't understand scriptures correctly. God affirms language as an effective transporter of meaning. Next, contemporary errors. Friends, I agree with Phil 100%. We cannot import a contemporary view of error on text, such as, and I think the Matthew, uh, the Matthew example of the mustard seed, I agree with Phil. Jesus isn't making a, a statement about biology, right? He's making a statement that was, again, an illustration. But did Jesus treat Noah as an illustration? No. He treated Noah as an objectively true person. Uh, contemporary, and I would agree, contemporary views of error should be rejected. We can look at, but how do we know it's a contemporary view of error? Well, we start with God has spoken, God doesn't lie, God speaks truth, God didn't err, we work it out hermeneutically according to, again, the her again according to the grammatical historical view of hermeneutics. And just like you know, Luther, right, didn't just start with Luther, Luther looked back at Augustine again, Paul, you know, Luther was an Augustinian monk, right, so he knew Augustine just a little bit, right? Augustine's one of the greatest theologians ever, right? Uh, writing around the 325 AD time, right? So they could look, again, at error, they could do hermeneutics, they could do exegesis. They knew that what you start with scripture. You start with your mind or your three-pound brain, or do you start with the transcendent God who is timeless, <coughs> unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing? See, I can know things because I know the one who knows everything. I can know things. Right? You can know things. Why? Because God spoke. Without that, you're reduced to absurdity. Again, intended meaning. Yeah, Phil and I agree. You need to get to the intended meaning. Here's the problem with that, though. Someone like Lycona, who rejects John 18, I mean, yeah, I'm using Lycona's name. Welcome up, guys. No joke. 
Luke 18, Matthew 27, he'll say, yeah, I, I affirm inerrancy. But the intended meeting was this. The intended meeting of John wasn't to show that Jesus was God in John 18. It was to draw a little picture of him, like mythos. If you read all of John's gospel, you can get to those I am statements. Jesus uses 10 of them in other places, right? What is John demonstrating? John's making an argument that Jesus Christ was God. Why? Because he was dealing with the controversies of his day where people were saying Jesus was just a man. He was demonstrating that Jesus was what? God, right? Uh, the next one, don't, the, the problem, again, the argument is the problem with my position is that it imports your own interpretation on the text. Man, that is a problem, right? That's why we have discussions about soteriology, about the law. Like, I, I got friends here that I know disagree with me on how we interpret the Old Testament law, right? I'm a 1689 guy, three parts law, right? It's where I am. I know folks who don't believe that, right? They reject that idea. We have good discussions. How do we do it? We look at Scripture. We know that God has revealed himself clearly in Scripture and given us everything we or we know. So again, Christ, the apostles, man, God's word shouts. Time. Now we have the six-minute affirmative closing statement. Okay, so in my closing statement, what I'd like to try to do is draw together the arguments that we've given and try to come to some conclusions, sum up. So I made four basic arguments here that language in the biblical language especially don't, don't allow for the level of precision the author requires, that contemporary understanding of error is much broader, that inerrancy best resides in the intended meaning of Christ and the biblical authors, and that the all-or-nothing approach does this very dangerous thing of encouraging people to fail to recognize the distinction between the text and their own interpretations. Now, I heard David making, let's see here. He made basically, I believe, four general arguments. First, that Christ and the New Testament authors had a high view of Scripture, that later theologians and from church history had a high view of Scripture, and that more recent theologians also have advocated for this, and also that Scripture is the only standard for evaluating Scripture and or shouldn't be subject to in human discipline. So let me uh, go through these here. First, I think on my argument here that uh, language in the biblical languages don't allow for this level of precision, I feel that David just kind of missed the point here. I did not say that language doesn't communicate, nor did I say that it isn't, there isn't an objective standard. My point is that language isn't so simple to always fall into these neat, simple, all-or-nothing categories, and that's why I pointed to the example of Christ talking about the mustard seed in Mark 4, because it's just not that simple. It's difficult. It's complicated. You have to work through it. And the danger I see with what David's saying is it just denies that this is going on in many cases. I don't know enough about the genre of the Gospels to say whether the things Lacona is saying there are right or wrong, but I think it's wrong to do what David's doing and just deny it wholesale. We need to argue about it, figure it out, and look at the evidence, and maybe he's wrong, maybe he's right. We need to figure that out. And part of the problem here is that knowledge is not an all-or-nothing thing. You don't have to know something completely in order to know it. You don't have to understand something completely to know it. I've never met the governor of this state. Does that mean I don't know he's the governor of this state? No, that would be ridiculous. I don't have to know something completely to, to know it. And that's part of the problem with what's going on in this 
all or nothing approach. Uh, second, I didn't really hear him refute at all my claim that the contemporary understanding of error is broader. In fact, he seemed to agree with me there. Where he disputed it is what my claim that that's the all or nothing approach is reading this back into scripture. And I just see so many countless examples of that going on. And that's why I gave those three examples from Acts, uh, Matthew, and Ephesians, where it's clear that they didn't see this as a problem, and yet we do. So why aren't we looking back and going, well, these were intelligent, educated Christians. They were, the, in some cases, the people who directly knew Christ. Why are they writing things that we see as a problem and they don't? That should really be something we think about. And um, uh, he made the statement that inerrancy, David made the statement that inerrancy is, uh, resides in the original autographs, and that's an extremely problematic thing, because if that's true, the Bible you're reading you have in your hand is not inerrant because it's not the original autograph. It was translated, and in many cases, not in many cases, excuse me, 99% of the Bible you have in your hand is almost certainly a very good translation of what the original author wrote, but there are some cases where it's a little iffy. There's an example where uh, the question is, did Jesus become angry or did he become upset? Well, if you don't know what it is, is it inerrant? That's a problem, and that's why I say we need to avoid tying inerrancy to a physical text and look to the meaning, because it avoids these types of problems. Um, I, I see so many examples where the all-or-nothing approach just encourages people to fail to recognize this distinction. In fact, I would say to David respectfully, when you call your view the consistent biblical approach, that's exactly what you're doing. You're saying... My approach is the one that I get directly from Scripture, and you're failing to recognize that's your interpretation of Scripture. Now, maybe that's the right interpretation. We need to discuss and debate and argue about that, but you don't get to just assume that's what the Bible says. You're not necessarily reading the text as it, the text. Just that's not the way things work. That's not how life isn't that simple. Um, let's see. So I already put on that. Um, I would say that we all actually do have to use sources that are external to ourselves to evaluate everything. That's what I tried to illustrate with the glass example. You have to read the Bible with your eyes. If you have bad eyesight, does that affect how you read it? If you have bad thinking, should that affect how you read it? It's not as simple as saying, I see it in the Bible, I read it in the Bible. Life doesn't work that way. Now, 95% or better of the time, if you're reading a good translation of the Bible, are you going to get the intended meaning very well? Yeah. But you need to watch out for that 5% of the time, lest you become one of those people who says, that's what the Bible says, that settles it, when it's not that simple. Um, this all or approach actually is view, it is new, you can read some history on that, I can recommend some books. Calvin and Luther are new, theologically speaking, they're roughly 1,400-1,500 years after Christ. Theologically speaking, that's new, even though history of us, that's ancient. It arose primarily, as I said, in response to the German higher criticism, which I believe David was criticizing, that said scripture isn't even true, which of course I don't agree. Okay. Um, so, uh, I'm good at time for that. So, uh, my primary thing is that we just can't look at scripture uncomplicated by our own philosophy or biases in our theology, and that's what this all or nothing approach does, and that's how it winds up encouraging people to say, that's what the Bible says, and fail to recognize their interpreting. And that's really dangerous because if you do that, you're never going to be able to have a discussion like David and I are doing. All right, we will now take a. You want to do two minutes or five? Five minute break. Yeah. We're taking a five minute break. If you've got 
questions on the card filled out, you can bring those right up here to the table, and uh, we'll begin to sort through those. And uh, in about five minutes, we'll take some time. Everybody, we are. We took a little bit extra time. Thank you for having an awesome conversation and uh, being here for the conclusion of the debate. And this, this debate is again your questions that you sent in, so we'll be asking that. Um, we'll be utilizing 20 minutes of time for this, so uh, stick around and hopefully one of your questions made it, and uh, we can be cordial during this time. So, with that said. This will start 20 minutes once you want to ask the first one. Okay. So, how this is going to work, uh, the question is addressed to the individual. They'll have one minute to respond. Um, then the other individual will have 30 seconds to respond to that as well. Some questions are to both, so we're going to give them both one minute, and then we're going to work through the question. So, this one is to Phil. Phil, here's your question. If not the Bible, what is the standard by which we ought to validate the Bible? How is it reliable? Oh, well, I anticipated somebody would ask me how it is Basically, you evaluate it pretty much the same way you would, at least in principle, evaluate anything else. Somebody tells you man landed on the moon and you weren't born then, how would you evaluate it? Well, you'd go back and look at the historical evidence. You'd, if they're still alive, you talk to people who were around then. And to as much as you can do that, you would do that the same with the Bible. So, for example, here's a quote from... Craig Bloomberg is a biblical scholar, and he says, textual critics and almost all of all theological stripes agree we can reconstruct somewhere of upwards of 97% of the New Testament text beyond a shadow of a doubt, meaning we know 97% certainty or higher what the original authors wrote. Now, further, there's a guy um, named Peter J. Williams out of Tyndale House in uh, England, and... Oh, Okay, well, ask me about it again later if you want. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons to trust him. So, uh, do I get 30 seconds yeah. to respond to that? Yes. Okay. Wind up the clock. Sorry, if you want to use my clock to do the 30 seconds, yes. that way you yeah, can yeah, too, yeah. it'll make it a little Thank easier you. for you. So I'd respond to Phil's position like this. He's going to tell you that we need to use our mind to evaluate scripture. And I would say, how do you know that your mind functions well? Well, because it's always functioned well. How do you know that according to what standard? See, here's the issue. In order to have any truth at all, we have to have transcendent, timeless, universal truths. And we do. Guess what? God's given them to us. God has given us the laws of logic. How do we know the laws of logic are true? God's demonstrated them in scripture. I forgot that I only had 30 seconds. <laughs> I forgot I only had a minute. Yeah. <laughs> See, our minds, our minds are not inspired. <laughs> All right, this question is for Mr. Van Bever. In your closing statement, you agreed that Jesus' statement about the mustard seed was an illusion and is not a physical fact. This directly contradicts your own definition of inerrancy. Please restate your definition and respond. Illustration, not illusion. Illustration, yeah, illustration. <laughs> Do I have a minute to respond? One minute. 
So, um, no, I'm sorry that you, you misunderstood that. I don't know who that was. That does not deny it. Again, I've said that when all the facts are known, scriptures in their original autographs properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm. Jesus was making an illustration. Was Jesus' statement true? Yes, in a sense it was. Why would I say that? Well, because he was making a point using an illustration. Now, let me make a biology lesson. No, he was not giving a biology lesson. He was using an illustration. So when Jesus makes a truth claim, certainly there are different standards of truth. Just like if there was 7,999 people killed in the battle, and the Bible said 8,000 people, do we say that the Bible is wrong? No, we don't import standards that are unfamiliar and outside of the context. We recognize the genre of the statement. We recognize that illustration as an illustration. So, no, the Bible is inerrant, and inerrancy would affirm that as that position. Your response, Bill? Yeah. So, Article 9 of the Chicago Statement, which David affirms, says that uh, we affirm the trustworthiness of the utterance in all matters which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. Obviously, the biblical authors there were moved to speak and write on Christ saying, a mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. Now, later in it, it'll, in the Chicago Statement, it does say we account for various things like examples and parables, but there's an obvious conflict there where that's an area case where the Chicago Statement overreaches and says things so strongly that it winds up saying something that's absolutely not true. Questions for both. Um, we will start um, with Dave, and then we will finish with Phil. Both of you will have one minute to respond to the question. The question is this: What level of fellowship and ministry can Christians who disagree on this topic have? What level of fellowship and ministry can Christians who disagree on this topic have? Who, who goes first? You. Okay. Uh, a lot of fellowship and ministry. I would be glad to stand beside Phil and minister the gospel with people. Um, I actually do think this is an in-house disagreement in multiple ways. I would also uh, meet with folks who don't, again, agree with my position. Uh, the 1978 statement says there at the end, like, look, this is not a matter of... Uh, of salvation, right? If, if you don't confess inerrancy, it's not that you're not going to be saved. The problem is the sure and true word from the God, from God you begin to question when you begin to question the validity. So I would be glad to stand by those. I mean, I'd struggle to stand by like Kona because I've got a lot of other differences, but like Phil and I, man, I, I think that we're actually really, really close, right? I think he's, I think that he's, he's wrong on some things, but he thinks I'm wrong. I hope that I've demonstrated why, where I stand. But, man, he preaches the same gospel I do. Christ entered into the world to save people who couldn't save themselves. Time. Yes, I don't see any reason why this should cause major divisions, why people in the same denomination, the same church, shouldn't have different viewpoints on this. I mean, I was arguing that there are many reasonable, valid interpretations of inerrancy, so I'm going to, I can't really go up and claim that and then claim, I'm not going to go to church with people who think right. it's different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I would, I would say that if your view of inerrancy entails that you think scripture records actual events that really did happen, then I'm quite happy to go to church and fellowship with you. If you go to the... If you go to the extreme, like the guy I mentioned, John Shelby Spong, or there's a, another guy like John Dominic Crossan, they don't think it's true in any sense. 
or at least they think parts of it aren't true in any sense, then we start having some real problems. But I think Ray Boyd is wrong on a lot of things, but I'd be happy to attend church with him because, as David said, I see him preaching the same gospel as I did. Christ died and rose from the grave on the third day for our sins. All right, this one is for Phil. If God is perfect and the Bible is God's word, would it be better to say that God's word is inerrant and that inerrancy and that errancy of man leads to a misinterpretation of scripture? So I'll say that again. If God is perfect and the Bible is God's word, would it be better to say that God's word is inerrant and that the errancy of man leads to mis misinterpretation of scripture? I'm not sure I quite understand what the questioner is getting at. Um, it definitely is the case that the errancy of man leads to misinterpretation of scripture all the time. I, I know I've misinterpreted scripture. Everybody here has in virtue of being a human being. That's what we're trying to argue against. So I, I think no, if I'm understanding that right, because the language just as I was arguing multiple times doesn't really work that way. It doesn't always fit into simple, neat categories. That's why we have miscommunications. That's why you have Christian denominations that have multiple different interpretations of the same passage. That's why you have Pentecostals and cessationist Baptists, because it's not always clear, and we need to have grace for each other in that. It's not always completely clear like that. So, yes, certainly, um, sin has impacted our communication. And I would actually point you to the historical narrative in Genesis, the power at the Tower of Babel. We know that prior to the Tower of Babel, the people actually had the ability to communicate with one another in a really effective means, right? Uh, we know that God spoke, and guess what? Adam and Eve heard, and they certainly did respond. Right. And I gotta get better than 30 seconds. <laughs> so, Mr. David. Yes. Since inerrancy applies to the original text and we don't have the original text, how can we know? <coughs> so, in Washington, D.C., there is a standard bar for a yard, right? Anyone has ever seen it? Anyone ever been to Washington, D.C. and see the standard bar for. Uh, what a yard is, right? Anyone here? No? No one has? It's a platinum bar. Uh, friends, uh, when I measure something, whether it's a house or whether it's even a bridge, I'm using a yardstick. I have the perfect standard. Now, I've never seen it. Anyone's ever seen it? I'll, get you, I'll bet you this. I'll bet you that the yard or the measure that you're using never actually has even been set up against it. But guess what? It's good enough. If you're walking across a bridge and it's covered with water, you might not see the bridge, but guess what? You know the bridge is there. It's there well enough for you to walk across it. So this is just a fallacious argument. Again, he's demonstrated really, really clear. Like, man, he cited great textual critics, right? 99% of what we have. Look, we have God's word. It's like a puzzle with 1,010 pieces, but it's a 1,000-piece puzzle. That's what we have. Anyone who's done textual criticism would, again, contend for that exact same position. Okay. It seems to me David's answer is confusing epistemology with ontology. Ontology is the justification of how and why things are. How and why is it the case that God's word is inerrant? Epistemology is the question of how we figure that out, how we determine it. Is. So my 97% quote is epistemology, and the question is asking the ontological question of, well, how can it be? And 
David's response, I feel kind of uh, confused and conflated the two, and we need to keep those distinct because you can know things without necessarily knowing how they be and vice versa. Okay, this one's for Phil. Um, I reword the question a little bit to what I think it's asking, so if I butchered it, it's my fault, I'm sorry. Um, how do you, uh, with your view of inerrancy, how do you reconcile it with your view of inspiration? And how, do, how does biblical inspiration affect your view of inerrancy? I can't find it, I'll just go. Um, inspiration and inerrancy are not the same thing, although they're very much related. If an author writes a history book that is completely without error, it's inerrant. It's not inspired because God didn't inspire the person to write it. I think the best uh, version of uh, inspiration theory is the supervision theory that God supervened what he wanted to write on the biblical authors, and there's various theories you can look into as to how he did that, um, and I'm susceptible to going with any, well, I haven't picked one, and I'm open to discussion on that. And as that's opposed to the dictation theory, which says that God, like something like the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they literally were writing things under which they had no control, or God was putting the words directly in their mind. I think Paul wrote what was in his mind, and God arranged the world and who and what Paul was in such a way that Paul wrote exactly what God wanted him to do, and that's the supervision theory of inspiration. I think the one that makes the most sense. So I would say that the real issue comes down to this. What is the locus of inspiration? Uh, by that I mean, where is inspiration occurring? Well, we ought to say a lot of times that Matthew was inspired or that Paul was inspired. No, no, no. The written text was inspired. It was inerrant, right? So here's the issue. With Paul, with the view that Phil holds, where he says that you can have a fluctuating or dynamic view of inerrancy, someone who rejects his view of inspiration can still say something inerrant, and he has to accept them. So Dave... Is it an error to say the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds? Uh, I think I've really already clarified this one, yeah. but I'll go ahead and demonstrate once again. Look, uh, I've been called, you know, said that I need all or nothing. I would actually say again, I'm the biblically consistent. How do I know that I'm biblically consistent in my hermeneutics and understanding inerrancy? Well, I measure it against scripture. Why? Because scripture is the ultimate authority. Why? Again, God has spoken and it's true. So when we evaluate what is true and what is false, whose standards do we import? Now, according to those who would tell you you should use outside sources to evaluate scripture, they've done something. They've imported an outside authority to claim authority over scripture, whether it is true or false. So if we begin with the presupposition that God only speaks truth, and we, again, exegete scripture according to that standard, we know that God doesn't lie. It's, it's very simple. Oh, I still have two seconds, though. So. <laughs> um, scripture is God's word, but we all use our eyes to read it. We all use our minds to understand it. We all use our own thoughts, ideas, feelings, and what we think about things to evaluate it. You can't not do that because you're a human being. The only one who can't 
it doesn't work that way in God because God is the ground of all things. So I'm not God, so that's how I know I'm not. I'm not doing that. <laughs> well, he's uh, reading that. I want to. Nobody's touched on this, so I would like to ask a personal moderator question. Right. Since nobody's touched on this, because something did come up um, that hasn't been hit on by the questions. But is and this is to both of you? Is circular reasoning reasoning valid? And then the follow up to that is, how do you know that? And so I will address it. <laughs> No, because you can use it to justify anything. Circular reasoning can be used to justify anything, like the example with the politician and so on and so forth. It's a basic logical fallacy. It's listed in every logic textbook you can ever find. There are examples of it where sometimes it's not viciously circular in the sense where it's uh, the most horrific logical fallacy you can make, but you certainly do not want to base a whole hermeneutic and a whole doctrine of something that's so important on circular reasoning. It's uh, it's like the example of the politician. Go And don't take my word for it. Go read a logic textbook. They're all going to list circular reasoning as a logical fallacy. Can I get in there? Yep. Oh, ask the question again. Okay, so... Is circular reasoning valid? And how do you know that? God told me that it is always going to be his authority that I ultimately submit to. Ultimate authorities require a circle. In fact, this isn't a new idea, right? Van Til's writing about it, and he's using folks like Augustine, and he's using, oh wait, he's using scripture. Why? What authority does scripture appeal to as the ultimate standard? Anyone? God. So is there a higher authority? So when we appeal to God, no, I'm not making, I'm not doing circular reasoning according to some outside standard. I have the ultimate authority. I rely on him. That's how Christians think. How do we measure what's true and what is false? Well, for the Christian, it's according to what God has said. Why? Because God's the ultimate authority. Ultimate authorities require some type of a circular reasoning. I mean, I'll tell you what, when I tell my kid, go to bed, and he says, I don't want to. One of us over here, right? I don't say, well, mom told me that you needed to go to bed. I say, because I'm dad. Guess what? He doesn't say, well, my logic tells me that I don't want to go to bed. He listens to the ultimate authority. We do it all the time. Sorry, John. I'm going to try to pick my bud. I don't tell him to go to bed. He doesn't bed once. I got one. So this is for both. Um, golf follows in the strand that what you just said. Okay. My question is, does an, any, does an appeal for ultimate authority ultimately require a circular argument? Does an appeal to ultimate authority ultimately require a circular argument? Yes. And we will do one. Do one. Well, you, you probably better ask me first. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if you can ask Bill first, too, but uh, however you want to do it, man. It's good. You can go first. Okay, because you went first last time. All right, so restate okay. the question. The question yeah. is, yeah. is an appeal to ultimate authority always going to lead to a circular argument? I've worded a little bit differently that time, but if I'm appealing to an ultimate authority, do I have to, therefore, have a circular argument? To not always. No, I would say that you do not always have to have a circular argument to appeal to an ultimate authority, right? Um, we can certainly use our mind to reason. In fact, 
Scripture says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Right? We do have minds that God has given us. And where you fall on the soteriological perspective uh, doesn't matter so much to me, but God has given us a mind. He's made us, uh, I believe, uh, free creatures that are called to respond. And therefore, yes, we do have to use our minds because we are logical beings. But at the, at the end of the day, we don't always have to, for every single authoritative statement or every single position, circle back, right? Because we can use our minds that God has given us. But at the end stands the ultimate authority. Uh, the ultimate authority isn't my three-pound brain, right? It's the transcendent God who speaks clearly and speaks authoritatively. And if he had to appeal to a higher authority, he wouldn't be the highest authority. You've got a picture yeah, I would definitely say no. There's a number of ways that you could answer that. Um, in some cases, it's going to be confusing ontology and epistemology again. You can go live in your house and not realize the foundation's there. I mean, that'd be pretty dumb, but you could do it. And there, you have a foundation and you don't realize it's there. There's a number of epistemological theories that don't work that way, where there's a ground that's not circular. There's a relational one that says for everything you know, there's the knower and the thing that's known. Therefore, there's no uh, one thing it's grounded in that's not circular. There's virtue epistemology that says that you're going to know things right if you're in the proper state of mind and you're functioning properly and in the right context, and they make it needlessly complicated. But the point is, no, it's not needless. It's not always circular. There's various ways that people have construed it as it's circular, but you don't have to go there, and you shouldn't because it's wrong to do so. So. Uh, all right, well, we're going to call it um, for the debate this evening. Thank you guys for coming out. Thanks for coming.